Uh, we've been studying in the book of Romans, and I do hope that it's been helpful to you. The book of Romans can be, uh, can be quite challenging, and at the same time, it is just uh, really a bedrock of our faith because so many things that um, are in your Bible from the very beginning, and I'll show you in a moment from Genesis uh, to now, is the, uh, the themes that Paul really unpacks in the book of Romans, and uh, so I hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have a Bible, take them out, turn to Romans uh, chapter 9. If you don't, uh, the text is printed in your bulletin, and uh, we're using the New Living Translation. This is not by mistake. Uh, it's on purpose, because the book of Romans is something that's been read by people so many times and so often. So I chose this particular translation, which is a, a loose, kind of a loose paraphrase, but I want to assure you that I've done uh, the due diligence of getting uh, into it enough to where I, I won't let any mistakes happen with respect to the to text itself. So let's read the uh, verses. I'll start with uh, verse 1. Now hear God's word. With Christ as my witness, I speak with utter truthfulness. My conscience and the Holy Spirit confirm. My heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief for my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters. I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ, if that would save them. They are the people of Israel, chosen to be God's adopted children. God revealed His glory to them. He made covenants with them and gave them His law. He gave them the privilege of worshiping Him and receiving His wonderful promises. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are their ancestors. And Christ Himself was an Israelite as far as His human nature was concerned. And He is God the one who rules over everything and is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. Well then, has God failed to fulfill his promise to Israel? No. For all who are born of the nation of Israel, not all that are born of the nation of Israel, are truly members of God's people. Being descendants of of Abraham doesn't make them truly Abraham's children. For the scriptures say, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted, though Abraham had other children too. This means that Abraham's physical descendants are not necessarily children of God. Only the children of the promise are considered to be Abraham's children. For God had promised, I will return about this time next year and Sarah will have a son. This son was our ancestor, Isaac. He married Rebekah. She gave birth to twins. But before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad, according to his purposes, he calls people not according to their good or bad works, 
She was told, your older son will serve your younger son. In the words of the scriptures, I loved Jacob, but I rejected Esau. Are we saying then that God is unfair? Of course not. For God said to Moses, I will show mercy to anyone I choose, and I will show compassion to anyone I choose. This is the word of the Lord. Well, you know, if there's ever a text that that, uh, a pastor looks uh, with some trepidation at preaching, it's certainly (laughs) Romans chapter 9, because it raises the question of predestination, of election, uh, and these can be very sensitive uh, issues. And what, there's a phenomenon, it's called cage, uh, cage stage Calvinism. Some of you may have heard of it. The, the minute that you find out uh, that you suddenly have a, this revelation that God elects people and chooses them and predestines them to everlasting life, you become a monster. And you need to be put into a cage for a minimum of five years. And then we'll give you some questions, test you and see if you're okay. And if you're all right, we let you out. Because it's a very, and I don't know anybody, I went through it, and uh, it's very, very difficult to explain this whole idea of God's electing, God's choosing, God's predestining, all of that. It's tough to do. Uh, And I'm going to do it, and I hope that it helps you. And if it doesn't, you can come and talk to Dawson or me, and uh, we'll be happy to try to explain a little bit more about it. But that's not what... Romans chapter 9 is about. See, a lot of people want to use Romans 9 as a proof text for a doctrine. And Romans 9 is not a proof text for the doctrine of election. And if you've been using it as that, you need to stop it because you don't understand what Paul is saying. The Apostle Paul is not trying to promote a doctrine that will, from that day forward, divide all of humanity. Because everyone has a view of things to come. Is it fate? Is it karma? Is it kismet? Is it by chance? Is it just random? What causes events to happen? Are we completely free? Are there no outside influences? We're just bouncing like, like atoms and molecules in the, in the world and bouncing off one another. I mean, what is really going on? Or are we merely puppets on a string and God is dangling us around and controlling us uh, like Pinocchio? Well, no. There's more to it than that. And so we'll talk about it for the next few weeks. And we're going to take our time because I know that this bothers people. When I first heard it, it bothered me until I asked John Calvin into my heart. And then I was okay after that. Paul ends the first eight chapters of the book of Romans on a crescendo. It's it's amazing the amount of, of glory that he has displayed in those eight chapters to us, good news and bad news. Bad news being that we're responsible for the way that the world is. You know, I get asked all the time, why does God, why is God so horrible? And if there's a God, why did he create a universe like this? And how come people, you know, are killing each other? It's God's fault. Well, you know, I don't think God ever picks up a gun and shoots anybody. 
We're the ones that do that. We're the ones that foster hatred and racism and greed and lust and you name it. And the Apostle Paul does a magnificent job of explaining that in just a few verses. In Romans chapter 1, he explains what's wrong with this world. And what's wrong with this world is that people have rejected God, suppressed the truth, and replaced it with a lie. This is the message of the book of Romans and so much of the Bible. But Paul ends in chapter 8 with these words. Listen carefully. Having chosen, he called. Having called, he gave right standing. Having given right standing, he gave his glory. What shall we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not even spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. Won't he also give us everything else? Who dares to accuse whom God has chosen? No one. God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who will condemn? No one. Christ Jesus died for us, was raised to life for us. Sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, he is pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? No. Overwhelming victory is ours. I'm convinced nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, angels, demons, fear for today, worries about tomorrow, no powers of hell, no power in the sky above or on the earth beneath. Nothing ever will be able to separate us from the love of God revealed in Christ Jesus. This is how he ends chapter 8. A lot of scholars don't really know if there's a connection between 8 and the rest of the book of Romans. They say, you know, Paul just kind of comes to this crescendo and then he moves on into something that uh, probably doesn't have anything to do with this. But other scholars, and I think the others are right, that Paul is not in any way stopping one argument and going off and creating some new issue. He is continuing this thread of the glory of God, the sovereignty of God, the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God, the love of God, the grace, the mercy, all the things that he has disclosed, the justice of God, that evil will be punished and that righteousness will rise and shine like the sun and that we are to trust him and that the only way that a person can have a right relationship with God is through trusting Him. The work of His Son Jesus on the cross and His life of perfection, His willingness to die for us and God's love for us in expressing that, that we should be rejoicing that God has been faithful. So is there a, a connection? I would say yes, that Chapter 9, particularly 9 through 11, which is about God's not election, not predestination. 
There's a proof text, and the proof text is God faithful. Is he faithful? Now, when you say that, immediately everyone says what? What do we all say to, is God faithful? What's the answer? Of course he's faithful. But we don't believe it, not for one minute. We allow him to be faithful in some areas, especially when it benefits us, but we don't allow him to be faithful in all areas because he's God, because God has got to check in with human beings before he does anything. And we think this is a modern problem. Modern people don't like the idea, especially living in a democracy. We should have freedom to choose. We should have complete freedom. In fact, I asked a Sunday school class here at Christ the King about four years ago. I asked the class, what is the one thing that we human beings need to thrive? And the answer in the whole class was freedom. We need freedom. Let us have freedom and we will flourish. And we got freedom. And we're not flourishing. You flourish only when you're free in Jesus. When you become a servant of this great king, then you become free. You become a slave to him and free to everything and everyone else. Nothing can touch you. Nothing can hurt you. But we draw a line there and don't think it's modern people. These people drew the line too. Is God really fair? This isn't fair. Well, we're going to talk about that. And please, if you have questions, uh, listen. So I I think there is a proof text. I think it's about God's absolute faithfulness, love, grace found in His Son. So Paul's intention in these next few chapters is going to ground us in God's faithfulness to his people, his his nation, the nation that he chose for no reason. He didn't give them an option. He just went in and got them. In fact, if you read the book of Exodus carefully, they never liked him all the way till the end. They kicked and fought against God. Please let us go back, please. And he would not let them go. It should produce in us this idea of God's faithfulness, not election. Election is just a side issue here. It should produce in us a profound humility. You know, I don't know about your life. Maybe your testimony, maybe your story is, I've been faithful to God all my life. I've tried as hard as I can to serve Him. And I've done everything I can to honor Him and and. And on and on and on, we toot our horn. And all the time we forget that when we do that, we are placing ourselves next to someone who really did all that. I tried really hard. Well, Jesus did it. I really gave up my life for my kids and for my this and that. Yeah, well, Jesus really did that. You only did it in part. We lose our minds because sin darkens our understanding. 
the whole idea of God's being faithful, God being central, God doing these things in and through and for and as us should create a profound humility, a sense of gratitude, a love, a motive of love that is supreme, that runs underneath everything else, every question that we may have, this runs underneath. And it should build into us, which I believe it does, and I hope these next few weeks will be helpful, an unshakable confidence. You see, Paul and the Old Testament writers and and even other New Testament writers only used this idea of God choosing and electing and predestining was to give us assurance, hope, that when we have lost and we have given all we can and and things are not going our way and the world is is going nuts outside and, and we're unfaithful. He's never not unfaithful, but we become unfaithful. And we start to wonder in our doubt. We would never say it in church. We've never expressed these kinds of doubts in church. But if you've ever laid awake at night and there's fears that are digging into your soul, you're afraid, what am I going to do? My health is failing. My money's failing. My kids are off the rails. Uh, a particular party is in office in, uh, in politics. Uh, you know, there's war and earthquakes. And what am I going to do? And we're wringing our hands. How can I be sure God loves me? How can you be sure? Because he says he loves you. He says, I love you. I chose you. I predestined you. I am your assurance, not you, and certainly not all this crazy stuff going on outside. Turn your eyes to Jesus. Look, we sang that old hymn. Remember that? It goes back to when I had long hair. Ugo and I had long hair down to our waist. Remember that? Who else? No, we were much longer than you, Russ. If a human being, now listen, if a human being has any part whatsoever in their salvation, their being rescued by God, then we would call it cooperation. Salvation by definition. Just think, my brother David, great theologian in his own right, David has always told us theology is all about vocabulary. When you say salvation, what do you mean? When you say election, what are you saying? When you say choose or predestine or God is faithful, what does that mean? Are you willing to look a little bit deeper? And most, look folks, most Christians don't. We just don't even bother. Too much trouble. I'll just find my little club, my clique with people that agree with me and I'll hang out there. So you can tell, just look around, this is how many people agree with us about predestination. That was pretty funny, you all. (laughs) If we have any part, then it's not salvation. He's not really saving us. We're just cooperating with him to save ourselves. But if he's faithful, if faithful means what it is intended to mean, then he is the one who is upholding the decisions and the choosing that we make. You listening? They're not not overthrown. He never overthrows our will. Never 
Our Westminster Confession of Faith explains it in excruciating detail. Brilliantly. B.B. Warfield said it was a great uh, 3-1 of the confession, the greatest paragraph ever written in the English language about the eternal decrees of God. But 21st century people, you know when our brains started to go to sleep? When we invented the pencil. That's also very funny, but I can tell you're not listening. The, the you know, we didn't have to remember stuff. When we could start to write and do all that, we didn't have to remember. I don't remember anything. In fact, it's my wife's birthday in two days. If that was not there, forget about it. You see, we, we don't have the ability sometimes, and we should, to be able to go a little bit deeper. Is he talking about election or is he talking about faithfulness? His faithfulness, not ours. And I'm going to make the case in the next few minutes if I can. So let's look. Three things real quickly. The heart of God reflected in the heart of Paul as he describes his feelings towards these people that he uh, is a member of that, that ethnicity, that group of people, Israel, Hebrews, Israelites, and particularly he was a Benjamite, but the Benjamites and the Judaites had, had kind of gotten together because there were very few left and they so now they just had one one group all right secondly we'll look at the love of God the ways that he loves his people and I told you last week and the week before that that love is not a feeling it's not an emotion it has as much to do with your thinking as it does your feelings. And your feelings have as much to do with your thinking as anything else. It's all meant to be together. The reason we don't understand our feelings and our rational thought and all of our intellect and all of these things is because they're disordered. A hand grenade was thrown into a human being and he blew up into a bunch of parts like... Humpty Dumpty, we fell off the wall and we cracked in a million pieces. And God's, from Genesis chapter 3 on, God is putting us back together. He's putting humanity back together. And so we do have this feeling. Feelings are different. You can't trust your feelings. If you don't think you can trust your feelings, I want you to come talk to me. Of course you can trust your feelings. Why wouldn't you be able to trust your feelings? Is that the one part of you that was not redeemed by Jesus Christ? He only redeemed your brain? Your thinking? No, he redeemed you whole. The whole you. And our feelings, yes, are disordered. Our thinking plays tricks on us. And we, you know, there's all this mess. And he's slowly putting it together. How? By being faithful to us. Not us being faithful to him. Do you have to be faithful? Of course. So we're going to look at the love of God. How does he love us? And lastly, the faithfulness of God. So let's go through this quickly. Let's look at the heart of God reflected in the words of the Apostle Paul. One through three. He says, Christ is my witness. I speak with utter truthfulness and conscience, bearing me witness, the Holy Spirit confirming my heart. Listen to these words. My heart is filled with bitter sorrow, unending grief for my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters. I would be willing to be forever cursed 
cut off from Christ if it would save them. He's expressing a thought, a feeling, an emotion, a posture of his being in which he truly longs for the lost. He's looking out at, at, at his people, his tribe of people, the Jews, and he's saying, my heart is breaking for these people. I have Every part of me is, is moving towards them with my, my thinking, my emotion. If I could do anything to save them, to help them, I would do it. Listen to the heart of this man. If you have, if you have friends or family or, or even any consciousness of somebody really being in a bad place and they need Jesus Christ, you know somewhat of he's talking about what he's talking about. This urgency in our soul, we know that oh, I would do almost, I would do anything if I could, but I can't. I would do anything if I could, but I can't. You don't talk somebody into becoming a Christian. We think that that's how we do it. We just reason with them and be, you know, give them all the good reasons why they should be a Christian. And for every one of those good reasons why you should become a Christian, I can give you an alternate reason why you shouldn't. If you've been a Christian for five minutes, you know that, that, is, that to be a genuine follower of Jesus Christ is going to be costly. We're going to suffer. And the only thing that makes it reasonable is that He paid the cost and that He suffered and that He promises that He's faithful. Do you see it? I mean, it's just glaring at us. And we just keep pushing back, pushing back the faithfulness of God, the heart of God, the love of God. Paul is expressing an urgency in the heart that's in the heart of every person, not just Christians, but in the heart of every person to be um, whole. To where you're, you're, you're not just okay, you're completely whole. And we all know that we're not, and we all look for a million reasons or a million ways to make us whole. Get married, have children, make money, make sure we don't put on any weight or make sure we, we put on some weight, uh, we make sure that we vote the right way, make sure that we think and do and all these other... We're constantly striving to be okay. Find vacations, find meaning, find something, anything. And nothing satisfies. We, we end up feeling impoverished. This is the heart of humanity. And then if you narrow it down a little bit more, you're seeing that Paul is saying, I, I, my heart's breaking for my own people. Look at 4 through, four through f- and 5. Here he talks about the ways that God loves and is faithful to his people. Now listen, I'm not talking about election. Just don't get... Nervous about that. Just listen to what he's saying. These are the ways. This is how God comes into the universe and loves people. 
that can't help themselves. They're, we're enslaved. We've already talked about this. Bit, you know, chapter 5, 6, and 7 of Romans. We are bo- we're in bondage to sin. And God frees us from that bondage. Look at these ways. Depending on how you count it, it, it can be seven or eight different ways that God loves us. We're chosen, adopted, revealed His glory. His glory was revealed to us. He made covenants. Covenants are not contracts. Covenants are relational. Contracts, you make a legal contract, you know, and that's one thing. But a covenant is deeper. It's relational. Connects you in a way that a contract cannot. He made covenants. He gave us the law. He gave us the privilege of worshiping. You know, now people will say, ah, I can worship, you know, I can worship God any way I want to. Okay, well, give it a go. See how it works out for you. It's not really that great. He gave us wonderful promises. Read your Old Testament. The promises are will blow your mind. He gave us, and this one is, this is stunning to me. He gave us Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, our ancestors, from whom Christ came, at least according to the physical nature, as a human being. If all of that other stuff wasn't enough, here's how he loves you. He gives you his son. That's how he loves you. There it is, folks. The ways that God loves you. He chooses. He adopts. He reveals glory. He makes covenants and agreements with us. He gives us law so that we don't tear each other to shreds. He lets us worship, actually come into His presence and sing songs to Him and confess our faith and hear His Word and take His blessed Holy Sacrament here in a moment. (laughs) Wow! And He became a human. He's not sitting up there and looking down at us and like like we're ants or or whatever, you know. Wow, these little people, they're so dumb and they're so worthless and they can't find themselves... Uh, if you gave them a map, they couldn't find themselves. No. Paul gets so exercised over what he has just said, and he does this many places in his writings. He gets so excited at what he's saying that he stops everything and he just starts singing the doxology. He is God. He rules everything. He is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. He can't hold himself back because he has just said something that is so incredible that it should just blow our minds. It's not ethnicity. It's by faith. Has he ever said anything different in the letter of Romans? Has he ever said there's any other way than to come to God by faith. It's not going to be because you were born a Jew or that you were born Irish or born like me, born Lebanese or Hispanic or any other race of people or any other group of people. Even if you were raised in the church, that is not a guarantee. 
The guarantee is not where you were raised or how you were raised or who raised you or anything else. It's not how good of a wise person you are. So somebody comes and reasons you from A, B, C, D to faith in Christ that you're just smarter than everybody else. I guess that's why I'm saved. Or I'm more humble than everybody else. Well, you just disqualified yourself there. That was also very funny. All right. Look, folks, we, have a, we, we think we are so wise and so smart. And God is back here and he's just simply loving and being faithful to his people. And when he describes certain things, it, it sets our, our teeth on edge. And I have always told him, Dawson and I were talking about it this week, and, and uh, um, if the doctrine, this doctrine of election and predestination, if it does not bother you, it should. It should give you the willies. And if you're okay with it, if you just say, ah, well, of course, I love that doctrine. Something's wrong with you. You need prayer. You may need an exorcism. Because it is disturbing. You know why? Because we are so helpless, so utterly powerless, so enslaved and enchained to our sin that even if you knew you needed to be freed, which many people do, how would you do it? Just tell me. How? I know I need to be free of this this addiction. I know I need to be free. How am I going to be free? I'll tell you what the whole world tells us. Try harder. Do better. Think right. Then you will do right. Then you will be okay. And God in His faithfulness comes to us and He says, I will make you okay. Then you can think right. And then you can do right. Because I've made you okay. But we don't want to give that up. Uh Uh-uh. No, 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 no. Because it doesn't seem fair. The love of God, the faithfulness of God, from the very beginning, God has been saying to human beings, I will save you. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. There's, the only reason you have any Bible whatsoever is because what is contained in Genesis 3, the chapter Genesis 3. And he makes a promise in Genesis 3.15 that he would, he himself, God, would bring a seed, seed one, not seed bunch, but seed one, and that seed, that, that person would crush the head of the serpent and in so doing would bruise his own heel or his humanity would be bruised or crushed, but the serpent's head would be crushed and so there would be a death blow to the serpent, but the man would die, would suffer. The promise 
of a seed, the promise. Abraham had a lot of kids. He had Ishmael from his, uh, his, his wife's maid. And then he got married after Sarah died to a woman called Keturah. And Keturah had a whole bunch of kids. In fact, most Arabs count their genealogy to Keturah, not to Ishmael which is very interesting. We think that all Arabs are all the same, and we're not. Some of us Arabs, like me, are better than you. And so, I mean, come on. Abraham had a lot of kids, so that was an issue. And it certainly wasn't the firstborn, because there's a pattern in Scripture where it's never the firstborn. It's always somebody else. It's not Ishmael, it's Isaac. It's not Esau, it's Jacob. It's not Aaron, it's Moses. It's not Eliab, the first son of, I think that's his name, Eliab, the first son of Jesse, but it's the eighth son of Jesse, the nothing, the nobody, the no count, David. And it wasn't the first Adam, but the second. The second Adam was the monogene, the only begotten of the Father. Stunning. Stunning. Being a descendant does not make you a Christian. And God has said this from Genesis chapter 3. He's never said anything different. How do you become a child of God? How? By faith, trusting the one who made these promises. Only the, Look at the verse. Only the children of the promise are Abraham's children. You see, Isaac, if you read the text, Isaac was beloved by God. What does that mean? What does it mean to be loved by God? Well, God loves everybody, doesn't he? In one sense, he does. But in another sense, not the same way. I love, I've got two sons, I've got two grandchildren. I love my kids and I love my grandkids. I love them differently than I do everybody else. Right? If you're honest, that's true. And God's love in, a, in, human, in human terms is similar somewhat to that. He does have a special love for those that are his children. Question is, how did you become his child? And that's what Paul is saying in these chapters. Big picture. You became a child of God because he loved you. It's deadly science. Silent, Ugo. Should I just quit now while I'm ahead? You're his child because he loved you this way. He expressed his love to you in a certain way. Didn't Jesus die for everybody? Yes, in a certain sense. But not everybody benefits from his death, do they? Only those who bow the knee to him. And how do they do that? By free will. They choose. 
They believe. They exercise their faith. God doesn't believe for them. God doesn't take faith and just drop it into their hearts. He does something more profound than that. We'll talk about it in a second when we close. Look at 9 through 13. God promised Sarah will have a son, Isaac. He married Rebekah. Then she has two kids, Esau and, I, and Jacob. And God says, I've loved Jacob. I loved Isaac this way. And I love Jacob this way. I don't love Esau this way. It's like, you know, uh, Sarah will probably remember, you know, and they have a joke about doctors, my brother David too, a joke about doctors that somebody was, had to graduate last in the, in the class from medical school. Make sure you find out who that doctor was and, and don't go to him. He graduated last in his class. That's Esau. Wouldn't you hate to be Esau? Esau's the one person in all of history that God hated. And we say, oh, he didn't really hate him. I don't know. R.C., I watched R.C. Sproul. I was sitting in the audience, and he did his Columbo routine where he has the frumpy suit, and he's pacing down. He says, I don't know. People are always upset. He said, they're asking the question, how could God possibly hate Esau? How could God possibly hate Esau? And he goes like this. My question is, how could he possibly love Jacob? We're asking the wrong question. How could he hate Esau? How did he love Jacob? What's wrong with us? Was Jacob a lovely person? No, he was terrible. His name means deceiver. (laughs) Man. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. This is my last R.C. story for for today. Early in his ministry, R.C. was in a debate with a Greek, a New Testament Greek scholar on the doctrine of predestination and election. And R.C. made his pitch for the doctrine of election. This Greek scholar got up and made his pitch, and he went through the language, the, he even reached back into the Hebrew language and, and Greek, and he's explaining all the ways that, that uh, uh, election... Uh, you know, means drawing and, and coaxing and uh, uh, making, making conditions right so that you can make your way to God and just kind of smoothing the road and, and on and on and on. And he went into detail about the word draw in Greek. And he says, you know, it's like draw, like, you know, draw water. And he said, you, you can't, you can't think that God is doing anything other than just appealing to us. And then it's all up to us. And so then it went back to Dr. Sproul. And Dr. Sproul said, I totally agree that draw, the word draw is the same word that you use for water in a well, that you draw the water. But nobody goes to the well and stands at the edge of the well and goes, here, water, here, here, water. That's all so funny. Okay, no, you've got to compel. In fact, the word draw does mean to compel, to bring them out. 
Paul and Silas were compelled or drawn into prison. They didn't go there because they wanted to. They were drawn there. This whole thing about God's faithfulness, folks, is simply this. God has said from the beginning, in the garden, when they ate the fruit and they're hiding from him, here's what he was thinking. Now, I shouldn't have, it's presumptuous for me to say I know what God was thinking, but this is how the story is to be understood. God's saying, how can I include them, not how am I going to exclude them? How am I going to get Adam and Eve back to me? And so at that moment, God made a decision, folks, to pay a price we could not pay. And to create conditions in this world, listen carefully, where we can believe when we otherwise would not. And Paul asks the question that everyone asks, God is, is God unfair? And he says, absolutely not. And there's no surprise in the question that people ask. Is he, He's unfair. This is unfair. This is not right. And that's the very sentiment that serpent deposited in the mind of Eve and Adam, he's not being fair. If you will just eat this fruit, you will be like God. Does anybody see the connection? Satan said, God is not fair. And folks, we've been agreeing with that devil ever since. God is not fair when he looks at a disaster right before his eyes and he says, okay, how can I include these people who have just stuck me in the back, who have betrayed me, who turned away paradise for slop? How can I include them? And we see it only the other way around. He's excluding, he's not being fair, he's not being kind, he's not giving us a choice. But you must think an awful lot of yourself. I would never, I would never have come to Jesus if he had not overthrown my heart with his special love. Did I choose him? Yeah, I did. Do I believe in him? Yes. I didn't get faith from some outer space. But God did something for me first. He said, where are you? Not, I see you. Where are you? That's his faithfulness. And that's all the doctrine of election is about. It's not about free will. and That's a side note. It's about his faithfulness. And where you can plant your anchor. How do you know? Look back, please, and listen carefully. Look at verses 1 through 3 again. Paul said, My heart's filled with bitter sorrow. I'm grieved for my people. If I could, if it was possible, I would die. I would be cut off. 
but it's not. And the question is glaring at us. If this is how God's heart is, if this is how He feels towards humanity, that He is urgently wanting every human being to come and trust in His Son, how is He going to create the conditions so that can happen? And here's what He does for us, folks. And we just breeze over it like it's no big deal. Paul is speaking in hyperbole. I would do this if I could. God doesn't speak in hyperbole. He speaks in facts and reality. Jesus' heart was filled with grief. Jesus' heart was filled with bitter sorrow, grief for His people, unending grief. And Jesus didn't say, well, if I could die for them, I would. No, He says, I will die for them. I will go all the way. I will create a world that is so, that they cannot possibly be lost. I will save them. I will not take a life preserver on a rope and sling it out there to them on the waves and the rough waves of life and say, here, save yourself. Make a good decision. Choose. No. I'll go. I'll go into the chaos. I'll go to the bottom. I'll get your dead corpse. I'll bring you out of the water. I'll put you on the beach. And I will breathe into you the breath of life. Ruach. From chapter 1 of Genesis. And chapter 2. I will do what you cannot do for yourself. Will you trust me? Will you? I hope you will. Father, please uh, help us to trust you. We love you. We thank you for all you did for us. We know that in no way are you changing anybody's heart so that they will reject you. That's already been done. We do that to ourselves. But we thank you for loving us this way, for giving us your Son. Help us, save us, and have mercy on us, O God, according to your grace. Amen.